0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Sarah Hardin, and I serve with the Connections Team at Northway. And I will be reading Hebrews eleven twenty-one through twenty-two and eleven thirteen today. Please open your Bibles with me, and if you do not have one, there's one under the seat in front of you. Hebrews eleven twenty-one through twenty-two. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Sarah. Church family, good to see you this week. Hope you're doing well. I'd love to invite you to turn with me, if you would, from there to Genesis chapter 49, the very end of chapter 49. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful you're with us. Um, I don't know if you remember where you were on March 6, 2022, but I was beginning the book of Genesis um, that day. mentioned before, some of you have met, married, raised your entire family during the time that we've been in this book. Some of you are here for the very first time. Welcome. You're about to catch the end of a two-year journey. Two years, 56 sermons later, we have come to the end of the book of beginnings. And this is a book that is interesting. It began with the creation of life. And yet what you're going to see today is it's going to end with not just one, but two deaths. Deaths. And it's, it's, it's fascinating that, that we go from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the very last words of chapter 50 are going to be and Joseph was buried in a coffin in Egypt. And it is no accident that this book begins with life and ends with death. The author, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wants us to see that sin's curse is still in place by the end that death still reigns on the earth at the end. Um, But, but, even though those are in place and the rescuer still hasn't come, what we're gonna see is that in these two deaths that are at the end of this book, that the hope and the promise of eternal life is still alive. The promise is still on the table of a rescuer who's going to come and make all things right. And in between these two deaths, is a story, one final story in the book of Genesis that is actually gonna point us to the greater story of what Genesis has been all about since we started. The promise of God to bring about a savior who will forgive us of our sins, who will cleanse us of all unrighteousness and who will make all things new when he safely brings us home into the promised land that he has called us to. That's what we're going to see here today. Y'all ready? Finish Genesis out. Let's go. End of 49 here. End of chapter 49. After Jacob has now prophetically blessed each of his 12 sons, Jacob, who we've been following since chapter 25, is now ready to die. You see, starting in verse 29, and then Jacob commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. So Jacob is 147 years old when he dies. We're told that in chapter 47. And what we're meant to see here is not just the death of Jacob itself. What we're meant to see here are the very intentional instructions that he gives to his sons that after he dies in Egypt, his body is not to be buried in Egypt. His body is meant to be taken back to Canaan and it is to be buried at the cave that is in Machpelah, which is in Hebron in Israel still today. And we see, we saw that from Genesis chapter 23, Abraham bought that cave. In fact, that cave and a well are the only two things Abraham ever purchased and owned in all his time sojourning in Canaan. And there in that cave, we see the patriarchs are buried. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah, and even Leah is buried there. And it's interesting because Jacob's beloved wife, remember, isn't Leah, it's Rachel, and she's not buried there. Now, if you remember, she died in childbirth on the way there, but died short of it. They buried her in Bethlehem. Our cave is still there today. Our burial tomb is still there today. And this is significant because what we're meant to see here is that Jacob's greatest desire isn't to be in Egypt, as blessed as it was there. His greatest desire isn't even to be buried with his beloved wife, uh, Rachel. His greatest desire is to be buried where the promise of God was. And that is signified by this cave that cave, when Abraham bought it, was a declaration that he believed in the promise of God, that one day God would give them the land and that through this people that God had chosen, he would bring forth a blessed seed in whom all the nations would be blessed, their Messiah. We know him as Jesus Christ. Abraham died in belief there. He, he wanted to be buried there, not back in Ur because he believed in that promise so much. And thus Isaac and now Jacob have aligned themselves with that promise as well. Don't bury me in Egypt, bury me in Canaan. That's where the promise of God is. I'm going to die believing that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. This is an act of faith that we're meant to see. Now, hold on to that because we're going to see that bookended in the second death at the very end of this. We'll come back to that in a moment with Joseph. But what happens, notice in chapter 50, verse one, Joseph immediately falls on his father's face weeps over him and kisses him. I'm going to save you some time here. Verses one through 14, the brothers are going to honor Jacob's request. They're going to go take his body and lay it to rest in Canaan. And what you're meant to see in verses one through 14 of chapter 50 are really three things. One, you're going to see incredible honoring of Jacob by all of the Egyptians They're going to mourn his death for 70 days. You need to know that is just two days short of the length of time that you would mourn a pharaoh. Just shy of a royalty funeral. The Egyptians are going to do that. And not only that, they're going to send an entire caravan. All the officials and dignitaries are going to accompany Joseph's family all the way back to Canaan on a many day journey to go see him uh, laid to rest there. And that's a big deal. This is a non-royal. This is a non-Egyptian. This is a Hebrew that all of Egypt is honoring in this moment. And so you see, what you're, one of the things you're meant to see here is the great favor that wasn't it just on Jacob, the favor that was on Joseph that blessed Jacob. You're meant to see that. And secondly, what comes with that is that this is fulfilling one of the promises God gave Abraham back in Genesis 12, three, that in you, the nations are going to be blessed. Those who bless you, I will bless. That's what's happening now. We've seen it. Through Joseph, God's chosen family here, all the nations are now blessing them and are being blessed themselves. Both the Egyptians and the Canaanites who are gonna watch this funeral take place in their own land are gonna go, man, this is an amazing act of mourning. This is a blessed family that's going on here. But thirdly, what you're meant to see in verses 1 through 14 is in the burial procession itself, their journey to Canaan, it is foreshadowing the Exodus journey that's going to happen 430 years later. And in fact, there is a word in Hebrew that is repeated over and over in this chapter. It's the word Allah. It's not the Arabic word Allah, which is God. This is the Hebrew word Ayla, which means to go up, you're gonna see it eight times in chapter 56 of them are in these first 14 verses. And it's the same word that is gonna be used to describe the Exodus in the book of Exodus. You're gonna see it there as well. The route they take, you can go from where they were in Egypt to uh, Hebron, to the cave of Machpelah. You can get there in less than six day journey walking. They're going to go a really long route all the way on the other side of the Jordan River. And that's interesting. Why would you take that route? That's the same route nearly that they're going to take 430 years later. This whole event is forecasting what's about to come. God is going to bring his people out of Egypt and he's going to provide for them. And he's going to bless them when they inherit the land of Canaan 430 years later. Later, So the first death takes place with Jacob. He dies holding on not to the riches of Egypt, not to even his beloved wife, Rachel. He dies holding on to the promise of God. Now, there's another death that will come at the end. I want you to note the story though that's sandwiched in between that immediately follows in verse 15. In verse 15, we are told when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, this is interesting right here. We find out something that's absolutely heartbreaking in this moment. After just chapters ago, we saw this beautiful um, reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers and this great forgiveness that took place and restoration And now we find out that Jacob's death has exposed a fear that has been within his brothers for the last 17 years since they reconnected. And it is that since Jacob is gone, that must mean now there is nothing restraining Joseph from retaliation. Their belief was that the only reason Joseph forgave them is because of his dad And as long as the dad was alive, Jacob, then they were protected. But now that he's gone, the true colors of Jacob are gonna come out and he's gonna seek vengeance upon them for what they did. And in fact, they can't even face Joseph themselves to express this fear. They have to send a messenger. Look at this in verse 16 and 17 to say, hey, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive them the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, we don't know if Jacob said this or not. Maybe this is the playing the old dead dad card where now that he's dead, it's like, hey, dad wanted you to forgive us. This is the last thing he said to us. He just told us that in our ears right before he died. Wants want you to know that. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But we do know this what they are conveying in this message is really threefold. Number one, they are conveying their deep fear that Joseph is going to seek vengeance. But number two, they are reaffirming their ownership of the crime that they committed against Joseph and the remorse for what they have done. Now, we've already seen them own it before, but they're owning it again right here because notice again, they don't, They don't just call what they did to Joseph an accident. They don't say it was a mistake. They don't try to use different terms. They call it what it was, it was evil. And notice he says it was a transgression and it was a sin. Now those terms are important because those are two terms, two sides of the same coin. A transgression is also a trespass. It's what you do when you cross onto somebody's property where you're not supposed to go, you cross a line that you were never intended to cross. That is a transgression, and that's what they did with Joseph in selling him into slavery. But they also sinned against him. The word sin is an old archer's term that when you'd shoot your arrow, if you didn't hit the target, the bullseye, anything outside of the bullseye, whether it is one millimeter or one foot, they would yell out sin. It means to miss the mark. Put those together. One is a crime of commission and one is a crime of omission. We did what we were not supposed to do according to God's law. And we didn't do what we were supposed to do for you, Joseph, according to God's law. We are guilty. But thirdly, they also plead for forgiveness in this statement. Now, here's what I want you to notice Joseph's response at the end of verse 17. When Joseph heard these words, he wept. He wept. Now you need to know this. This is the seventh time we've seen Joseph weep in this narrative of him. And it's interesting because Moses never records that he wept when he was thrown into the pit by his brothers, never records that he wept when he was sold into slavery, never records that he wept when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, never records that he wept when he was put in prison for all those years. Now, it's not saying he didn't, but it's not recorded. What is recorded is that Joseph wept when he sees his brothers for the first time. He weeps when he sees Benjamin for the first time. He weeps when he reveals himself to his brothers. He weeps when he tells them they're forgiven. He weeps when he sees his dad for the first time. He weeps when his dad dies. And now he weeps here when he finds out what they were feeling. Now, why does he weep here? It's because Joseph knows he had already forgiven them. The debt had already been paid. And it breaks him to find out that they have been carrying this undue burden of fear and shame all this time continuing to fear condemnation and notice they still come to him acting as if there's still a debt that has to be paid for what they've done. You see that in verse 18, his brothers also came, they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. In other words, it's like the prodigal son. Just give me the lowest job for what we've done. We're your slaves, whatever you want, our allegiance is to you. Now here's where I want to stop for a moment say man I actually totally get what these brothers are feeling in this moment and I would be willing to bet there are many of us in here too those of you that have been following Christ for a period of time I can know that I have confessed my sin before the Lord I have repented of my sin before the Lord and I can know fully that he has forgiven me on the cross because of what Jesus has done in dying in my place, shedding his blood for me. My sin has been forgiven. It's been atoned for. I can know all of that. And yet a day later, I can start second guessing his forgiveness. Y'all know what that's like? Do you, you feel that too? Where all of a sudden I can know all that and rejoice all over that. And then I can feel the very next day that man, Maybe, maybe he didn't fully forgive me in this thing. Wondering if God is still mad at me for what I've done in my life. Wondering, feeling those feelings of shame begin to creep back in. Fearing some form of retribution is going to come after me. Like some form of karma all of a sudden I start holding to. And then like these guys I can start feeling like I need to offer some sort of penance with my life in order to work off the debt that I, I assume still remains in order to be in favor with God again. I can do this over and over and over again. I can feel like somebody's like Jean Valjean and Les Mez where it's like, I know the priest has forgiven me for stealing his silver, but I just gotta feel like I could work this off the rest of my life. Or Private Ryan and Save it, Private Ryan. I know somebody substituted their life for me to purchase my life, but now I'm gonna feel guilt and wondering, was it ever enough, all that I've done? Has it earned the favor the rest of my life? We can do that with God. We can somehow feel, we can hear God's words of forgiveness, but feel in our flesh that it's not enough. And we can heap that same shame and, con- con- and conviction all over us again, and that guilt and that, that, that sense of condemnation. It's what our flesh can do to us. Our flesh, Jeremiah 17:9 says, the, the heart is deceitful above all things. It can trick us. We can believe these lies and then feel that with an enemy. Satan himself, whom we're told in Revelation chapter 12, one of his jobs is to stand before the throne of God day and night for your entire life, accusing you before the throne. Right now, as I'm preaching this, Satan is before the throne accusing Shay Sumlin of his sin before God. And he's doing the same with you. And we can feel that and we can, we can, invite in all those feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation, but you need to know if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have put your trust in Christ's blood that was shed for you at the cross, those feelings are lies from the pit of hell. And maybe some of you in this room right now are feeling that sense. You have confessed your sin. You have repented of your sin. And yet you're still feeling the Lord's anger at you. You need an understanding of a theology of forgiveness. That when God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. I just want you to sit under the fountain of these words in scripture for just a moment, would you? Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say that he waited for us to do enough penance, do enough good works And then we became acceptable and then he died for us. No, he shed his blood for you while you were still full on in rebellion towards him. That is how much God loves you is that he sent his son for you while you were still in your sin. And then Ephesians 1, 7 tells us after Christ has gone to the cross and shed his blood, died and resurrected in him, we have our redemption. We've been bought back now. And we have been set free through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, it's ours. According to the riches of his grace. Even the psalmist could see this as the heart of God. Psalm 103 verses eight through 12 says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know something? That verse right there is the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. When God wants to show his business card, hey, this is who I am. We tend to think about him, oh, he's the ogre in the sky, he's wrathful, he's this and that. When God says, you want to know who I am? I am the God who is merciful and gracious, I am slow to anger, steadfast, abounding in steadfast love for you. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? That is the confession of one who had been forgiven and knew it. Jeremiah 31, 34, in the new covenant, the promise of a savior who would come and die for our sins. We were told this, in that day when that happens, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin, what? For a couple of days, no more? Just no more. And in fact, that's why Paul says so emphatically, understanding what Christ has done for us in Romans 8.1, if you have put your trust in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John reminds us, you can applaud for that all day long. That is our story. First John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that is why Jesus can say in John eight thirty six, if the son has set you free, then take this to the bank. You are free indeed. Church, if this is not the good news of Jesus Christ, I don't know what we're doing here this Sunday. This is the hope of the world. This is the hope of Abraham. This is the hope of Isaac. This is the hope of, of Jacob. And now Joseph, they are looking to this day. And where they are looking ahead, you and I are looking back and remembering the faithfulness of God to provide for us. So when your flesh wells up with insecurity and begin convincing yourself that you are under the wrath of God and under the condemnation of God after you've already been forgiven by Jesus, and when that accuser sits in that courtroom in that witness chair and just keeps playing reels of your sin all day long, you need to remember Paul's words to the Romans in Romans 8:34, who says, In that moment, who is there to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he's the one who raised, who is right now at the right hand of God and who is interceding for you. He is your great defense attorney. And when that accuser holds up those reels of your sin, Jesus just shows exhibit A of your forgiveness. His hands and his feet, nail pierced, proof of his blood shed for you that forgave your sin once and for all. There is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice Joseph, who by the way, is just a shadow of the true and greater Joseph, Jesus Christ. Notice what he extends to his brothers who are so fearing his wrath. He's going to give them three things in verses 19 through 21, assurance of God's forgiveness, assurance of God's providence, and the assurance of God's ongoing care. Joseph said to them, do not fear. Do not fear. By the way, number one command in the entire Bible, 150 times shows up in your Bible. Do not fear. You don't have to fear right now. For am I in the place of God, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, he meant it for good in order to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, he bookends it, for I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why is it you don't have to fear that I'm going to bring vengeance upon you? Because Joseph understands something that neither Simeon nor Levi understood back in chapter 34 when they sought vengeance against Shechem. And that is God is the only one who is entitled to bring about vengeance. That is not my place. Am I in the place of God? This is an interesting phrase, by the way, because Joseph is the second highest in command. In all of Egypt, they revered him as a god in a sense. He could do whatever he want. If he told Pharaoh, I want these brothers executed, he'd have it done that day. But Joseph understands there's a courtroom higher than himself that he is not worthy to fulfill. God is the one who will judge. Vengeance is the Lord's, it is not ours. Now, that doesn't mean we don't seek justice in this lifetime. Certainly, as image bearers of God, We reflect that image in seeking justice against injustices. That's not excusing this, nor is it downplaying sin and letting people off the hook. What this is doing is understanding that in our finite systems of justice and our finite systems of the flesh, our justice will never be perfect, but God's always will be. Why? Because God sees what we can't see. God knows what we can't know. And there is a day coming when he will mete out his justice in 100% perfect righteousness. Everything will be met. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father has given all judgment to the hand of Jesus. There is a fixed day where Jesus Christ will judge the world. The good news is if you have already put your faith in Jesus Christ the greatest injustice that's ever committed in the world is treason against God has already been paid for by Jesus himself, who died and bled to forgive you and me of our sins. Anyone who is not in Christ will be held accountable on that day. And that justice will be met in his perfect execution. But Joseph knows this. He entrusts this to God. Therefore he can play the role of forgiveness with his brothers. In addition, what helps Joseph to forgive them is his understanding of God's providence. He says, what you did towards me was pure evil. But God, and y'all, there's a lot of but gods that are beautiful in the scriptures, and this one is no exception. Even though what you meant towards me was evil, God meant it for good. Isn't it amazing, by the way, how two people who've been through the same traumatic experience can come out with different understandings and interpretations as to why it occurred. Two different people. All these brothers can see is the negative. They see what they did. They see the shame. They see the vengeance. They see they own everything rightly as they deserve. But the one thing they cannot factor in that Joseph does is God. When you understand the providence of God in the midst of your sufferings, it changes everything. It doesn't minimize anything. Joseph doesn't whitewash what they did here. He doesn't deny what they did. He doesn't rose color what they did. He doesn't say what they did was, it wasn't a big deal. No, he says what you did was pure evil. No human should have to go through what you put me through. That is evil. But God, but God, all that being true, not denying any of that, You are denying God if you don't recognize that God had providence over and in this for his good, for your good. In the long run, God is doing something bigger than any of us can see. And Joseph's going, look what he did. I know what you did. Look what God did. He used your actions that ended up leading me to becoming the second highest in command of Egypt in a time of famine. And that in itself, God used to rescue countless numbers of souls and spare their lives in famine and most importantly one particular family that God spared the family of Jacob that spared them so that God would would preserve his promise that through them all the nations would be blessed don't look at man in your suffering look at God see what he's doing. You may not always see it at the beginning, rarely do we ever, but in time you will see it. And in the fullness of time, we will see all things clear when Christ returns. Joseph is helping introduce his brothers to God in this story with an understanding that God's providence changes everything and that even though evil occurs, man is responsible, God is still sovereign over it and will use it to accomplish his perfect plans. And the same for us. don't want to rehash it anymore. Just go listen to the sermon again on Genesis 37, where we talk about the problem of evil and the, and the problem of suffering and the providence of God. If you are in Christ, that is why Paul says in Romans 8:28 and 29, "We know." that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not just the good things, all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. And the purpose is in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. There are a thousand things going on in your suffering, but one thing you can for sure take to the bank of what God is up to is he's trying to make you more like Jesus in the midst of it. And he will not waste your pain. One of the greatest examples of suffering and injustice and the providence of God using evil for good is Jesus Christ on the cross. Where what men did by hanging our savior on the cross, our own sin put him on that cross. The most evil thing that could have ever happened is to put God in the place where we deserve death. And yet God's providence meant it all along in order to bring about our very salvation for the ones who did it. Joseph couldn't see this early on, but he sees the providence of God now. And as a result, he can calm their fears that he is not the judge. God is, and God has already met it. God had a purpose in it to bring about salvation. So Joseph, role now, is that a forgiver? And I love the last line of verse 21. Moses inserts this here. Thus, he comforted them with these words. Isn't that beautiful? Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1, when Paul says, blessed are, be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How was Joseph, the victim, able to comfort those who victimized him is because he experienced the comfort of God himself and therefore was able to give it away to his brothers who had confessed their sin, who had repented of it and now been forgiven. Church, one of the ways you can know you have truly forgiven someone who has harmed you after they have confessed and repented is when your greatest desire is to care for them who wounded you and to help lift the burden of their shame point them away from the past into the future of what God intends to do in redemptive restoration. Well, in between verse 21 and 22 is 50 years. So we've now jumped forward in time. Verse 22, 50 years later, we now come to the end of Joseph's life. And here we're gonna see not only the end of Joseph's life, the end of Genesis. We see in verse 22, Joseph remained in Egypt He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. He essentially adopts some of his grandchildren as his own, just as Jacob did Joseph's sons. And Makir's children are going to be Gilead, who are going to play a very influential role in Israel's future. But Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin In Egypt, so what we see here in these last verses is Joseph lived an abundant life. God blessed him richly. He got to see his children, his his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren grow up and protected in Egypt. God was so faithful to preserve Jacob's family, bring them down to the Goshen. One theologian said the Goshen in Egypt during this famine and all these years was like a womb. God was bringing them in so he could grow this womb from 70 people into upwards of 3, 400 years later when they will give birth through the Exodus and head back into the promised land. God had a purpose in it all. Joseph got to experience a bit of that before he dies, but as he's dying... He sees the same vision that was given to his great grandfather, Abraham, back in chapter 15, when God tipped off Abraham and let him know prophetically, hey, you're going to have a great nation. They're going to go to a foreign land. They're going to be there for 400 years through some very hard labor. And then I'm going to deliver them and bring them back to Canaan. God told Abraham that back in chapter 15. Joseph now sees it's going to happen too that God indeed would bring about an exodus. And you see that word again, that phrase, Ayah, to take up, to bring up. He's gonna bring you up out of this land. God is gonna be faithful. Joseph knows that day is coming. He doesn't know exactly how or when, but he knows God promised it. Therefore, it's going to happen. And when it does, just like Jacob requested at the beginning of this sermon, make sure you take my bones. Not, don't leave them in Egypt. You take them to Canaan. And sure enough, do you know in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, when the Exodus comes about, Moses himself is going to grab Joseph's bones on the way out. He's going to carry his bones for the next 40 years in the wilderness. And then in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, Joshua himself is going to bury Joseph's bones in Canaan, just as Joseph asked them to do. 430 years later. And thus Joseph dies, being fully identified and looking forward to not Egypt, but God's promise in Canaan. Let me ask you something. If you were attending Joseph's funeral, after all that we've read these last several weeks, all that you know about Joseph from the book of Genesis, let's say you were there and you got invited up here on the stage and you got to share one thing, one takeaway about Joseph's life, what would you share? Would it be about his great suffering that he went to, went through? Would it be about his ethics and his morality, how faithfully he served? Would it be about his great exaltation that God gave him as the prince of Egypt? Would it it be the forgiveness that he granted his brothers? There's so many things we could select from, right? Isn't it interesting in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the hall of faith, talking about all the great faith of the patriarchs. Joseph's going to get one line. The author of Hebrews gets one shot to say one thing about the thing that marked Joseph's life more than anything else, and it is nothing that we would have guessed. As we read at the beginning of this service, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 22, says this about Joseph's faith By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones that's a weird thing to put in there I think I would have picked a few other things and this is the author of Hebrews way of saying of all the things that happened to Joseph good and bad the one thing that anchored Joseph's faith more than anything else wasn't looking backward at his sufferings it was looking forward at the anticipated fulfillment of the promise of God Joseph believed what God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I will bring you back to this land. You will inherit this land. Through you, I'll make you a great nation. And through that will come one in whom all the nations will be blessed. That was the greatest thing that Joseph looked forward to in his life. And in fact, all the patriarchs, the book of Hebrews describes as this way. We read this as well in verse 13 of chapter 11. These all died in faith, Not having received the things that they were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They died, all the patriarchs, not having received that promise, but they believed it by faith. They believed God was not just a promise maker, He was a promise keeper. And sure enough, God did it. How about you? Contrary to popular belief, the death rate's still at around 100% right now. There is a day that you and I are going to die unless the Lord returns first. There is a day where the last thing that for many of us in this room are ever going to see before we take our last breath are the lights above our hospital bed. When that day comes for you, what is it you will be looking towards the most? for your hope and your joy. Is your last breath going to be marked by looking back at the great career you had? All the money you made? The great travel experiences you got to go do? Is it going to be marked even by your family members? Hopefully we gather around your side in that moment. It's going to be marked by all the accolades and awards that you received. Or will your last breath be marked by looking forward and believing in the full assurance of faith that what happens after that grave is the greatest fulfilled promise you'll ever experience in your entire life? I want to tell you there's only one person who's going to walk you through that death onto the other side. And his name is Jesus Christ because he's the only one who ever went into the grave and came out on the other side victorious. If your trust is in him, he will carry you through. Church, this is what the book of Genesis is about. A singular, all-powerful, benevolent, triune God who created everything with just the word of his mouth and said it was good. But no sooner after that happened, it was all contaminated by our sin and a curse was put upon the earth where all of a sudden we were alienated from God and from one another for the very first time when everything on our planet got fractured and when fear and evil and death entered into the human experience for the very first time. But in that moment, God made a promise. He made a promise that one day he was gonna send a rescuer who would come undo sin's curse, who would crush evil, who would save us and make all things new again. And in doing so, God chose the most unlikely way to bring that rescuer forth, and it was through a chosen family. Broken, sinful humanity, but God was gonna pick this unlikely family by no merit of their own and say, through you, I'm gonna bless you. And through your family line, I'm gonna bring this rescuer into the world who's going to deliver you and whom all the nations will be blessed. And we have seen as we've traced the book of Genesis these last 56 weeks that no matter what threat comes against the promise of God, whether it be famine or infertility or nations or wars or even the sins of God's own people, nothing can thwart the promises of God. Nothing. He is faithful His providence is sovereignly working out his purposes even to this day. Right now, it continues through us. He is working out his purposes for his glory and our good. And Genesis is not the end. It is the beginning. It is the beginning. Joseph's coffin in Egypt is not the end. Your coffin in Dallas will not be the end. It is only the beginning of what God is continuing to do. And if you just turn the page keep reading. The Exodus comes. God will deliver his people. He'll bring them into the land. He will make promises, more promises to them. They will keep rebelling against him, but God's faithfulness will not stop until the day that he shows up in a small little town in Bethlehem, where just prior to Nazareth, he made a promise to a young, unlikely teenage virgin girl who said she would conceive and in her womb, would be brought forth a child whom they will name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus will grow up to live a life of righteousness in accordance to the law that we were unable to keep since Genesis 3. And he does it for us, and then he goes to the cross where he substitutes his life like Judah of old, for us, where he takes the penalty that we deserved, and we get, through trusting in him, we get his righteousness added to our account, forgiven of our sins. He rose three days later from the grave to rubber stamp that it is finished, to declare to everyone, victory has been made. And then 40 days later. He ascends to the right-hand throne of God where he takes the scepter of Judah and it has never departed since. And right now he's in the business of interceding for us against Satan, our accuser, and he's in the business of gathering a people into himself, which look around this room, he's still doing it 4,000 years later. And then one day, when the father has appointed, he will return and he will remove this time, not just the power of sin, Satan, death, the very presence of sin, sin, sin Satan, and death, And he will wipe away every tear from our eye and he will make all things new. Your hope is in Jesus Christ, nothing less. And God is faithful to his people back then. He is faithful to you right now. And you can trust him all the way through to your grave on the other side. For he is faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for 56 weeks of seeping richly in the book of Genesis. Thank you for the promise that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that even though all of our earth and all of humanity has been fractured because of our sin, God, you are faithful to bring about a savior who would pay the price for it all so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, and made new. God, help us to hold fast to the one who has held fast to us. You are faithful to your promises. Help us to be faithful to you all the way to the end for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.